if someone can do your your job to a 70% level, then delegate that job, right? Delegate that task. And then you train them up to 80%. Coach them, train up, train them up to 80%. And then be satisfied with that. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Wella, and today I have with me Nate Two, head of the Key Renter Franchise. Nate, thanks for coming on. Man, it's great to be here. Thanks, Jordan, for having me. Nate, we've known each other for some time, but there's plenty of aspects of your story that I don't know, and certainly for the audience, they're starting from square one. Give us a little bit of your, your background and how you got into residential property management. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I think we all have a story, right? <laughs> Where it didn't it just just naturally happen. You know, it's not a decision we made, you know, actively when we were kids saying, I want to be a property manager someday. But I knew I wanted to be in real estate and I wanted to be investing in real estate. I think from an early age, I, you know, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad oh, probably in, in my <laughs> late, my it. late teens, you know, I think wow. we all read that book, right? That got us inspired. I, I think I read uh, The Millionaire Next Door, which is another inspiring book for me. And uh, I actually went into selling home security systems door to door for a couple of years. It sounds like a hustle. It was a hustle. Absolutely. Lived in Denver, lived in Philadelphia for you know those period of time. What was that like? Tell me a little bit about that experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a grind, man. And you're 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 knocking doors for 12 hours, 14 hours a day, oh, 6 it. days a week. And uh in the brutal heat and humidity in Philadelphia in late July and August. But it was for 4 months. You know, I was newly married. You know, I was 23 years old when we mm -hmm. went to Denver for the first year, and uh, my wife actually was knocking doors too and that was really hard for her. <laughs> and so the next year when we went back out, because we made some good money. I mean, you make really good money if you can have, you know, if you have some conversational skills and you can get in the doors with people, you can make some good money. And so we made enough money that we didn't have to work uh, for that year of college. And so you work for four months, you come back, you go to college, you focus on that. That was really cool. So the next year... I went out as a manager, uh, co-managed an office in Philadelphia. And so I was involved in recruiting, getting a team together. We had about 25 guys. We go out there. My wife is now working in the office, which she loved. She had a great time. There's her and another gal that were there. And, uh, you know, Philadelphia was just such a great place and a great experience. And you're kind of, um, you're on your own, but you're also part of a team. And you have the ability to just meet all kinds of people. I think it was through that that I, I learned more about myself, mm. about my work ethic, mm. and how I could really create something impactful, you know, for my for my own life. And so, come on from that. Actually, it was a, there was a, a guy that was working there. He was a technician because I was selling security. And we had a whole technician side. These guys that were installing the systems that we were selling, and he knew Aaron Marshall. 
And Aaron Marshall was a, a top real estate agent and broker in Utah. What and year was this? This is 2006. Okay. 2006. Come home and, you know, this, this guy, Tim, that I worked with back in Philadelphia, you know, I, you know, I got to know him really well. I mean, I was talking about real estate and how I really wanted to get back and start investing and start doing more real estate related. He's like, you got to meet Aaron. He's been doing all kinds of stuff, you know, selling foreclosures, investing. And so um, I reached out to Aaron and, you know, had a little job interview with him. Said, hey, I want to help you sell foreclosures. I see you're one of the top agents. And so that's how he and I met was I joined his team to help him sell bank foreclosures. And in 2007, 8, and 9, he was number, number one, two real estate broker for REOs in the state of Utah. And he was traveling around the country to visit all the different REO offices. And so I started working with him in that capacity. And there's an element of, well, first of all, when, when we met, there was a synergy very, very quickly. And so he didn't necessarily need someone on his team, but we got along so well. He brought me on to help him sell foreclosures. And um, we, we started a few other ventures together, actually. <laughs> a couple of them didn't work out very well. And, uh, but there's a, a property management element to foreclosures. So you're, you're dealing with, you know, a homeowner, they lose the house. Sometimes you're working out cash for keys situations or different solutions, uh, rental solution. People thought we did property management in the, the Keller Williams world. That's where we were officing out of. And so we would get referrals for property management. And in 2008, um, 2007, 2008, we were flipping houses together as well. We started doing that. And uh, there were some homes that didn't flip, so we turned them into rentals. And so we kind of got into the rental game that way. And we started getting more and more referrals. And we're like, hey, we, we don't really do property management for other people. We're starting to do it for ourselves. But then the more we thought about it, the more it made sense. And we started, I started looking at the business model more. And uh, we got a wrong call, actually, from some investors out of California the founders of Budget Blinds, actually. Thanks, Brent and Chad. <laughs> and they called us up and said, hey, we got your number. We heard you guys have a great property management company. We have four spec homes, Traverse Mountain, this little area, and uh, we want you guys to manage them. And I turned to Aaron, turned to our assistant, like, hey, should we do this? <laughs> and, and I'm like, hey, yeah, we can, we, can, we can take care of that for you. And gratefully, they didn't ask for the name of our company. They didn't ask for a website or any of that stuff. So we, we got started with, with those two guys, had four properties. And then from there, I focused on property management and building that company. Aaron continued with the, the REO business, and that started to wind down. So 2009, especially 2009, 2010, the Foreclosure Act was passed, and that business went from booming to almost nothing overnight. And so, you know, we went all in on property management and um, he still had a retail side of his brokerage and he was still involved there. But then by 2012, I would say, um, we were looking for something more. You know, I, I, you know, I, I came from a background of, um, you know, economics. That's my degree in, in, in uh, economics and business. 
Um, and I've just always been fascinated by process and efficiencies and trying to create something that was more automated, but also really high touch and high quality. And so built a great business back, back then. We actually acquired a portfolio in 2011 that helped with our growth. Um, but we also needed a, a new name for our brand. Our name back then was actually Premier Management of Utah. It wasn't Key Renter. And so we did all sorts of things to, to try to find the right name. We even pitched at a, an MBA marketing group up at the University of Utah and offered an extra credit opportunity for the students there. Um, I knew the, the director of the MBA program up there. And uh, we didn't find anything through that either. <laughs> but it was through an acquisition that we saw the name Key Renter. So we actually bought the portfolio, we bought the IP, we bought the name, Key Renter, and we loved it. We rebranded it, changed the colors, changed all you know that sort of stuff, trademarked it all. And we were going to go, we wanted to go nationally. We knew that. And Aaron really wanted to go nationally as well because his, his retail and REO business were you know, really slowing down and even dying. And he knew it and he was selling some stuff off. And uh, so we started getting licensed in Arizona and in Nevada, Colorado. But then we quickly saw that um, we would need to carry all the liability of the offices, but also we need to travel a lot more. Mm -hmm. We'd have to start recruiting more, being away from our families. And that was a big deal for us. And, um, you know, I had, I had a little girl at the time, you know, now she's 11, <laughs> but uh, didn't really want to be away too much. And so, you know, this is kind of a funny side story here. This is how we got into franchising. You want to, you want to hear this story? Hit me. Okay. So it was October, 2013. So we built this business, you know, and we had this uh, property management company. We wanted to go nationally. We weren't sure if opening up in these offices was the right way to do it. And I watched uh, this one night, I watched an episode of Undercover Boss and it was an episode of Menchie's. And I remember watching this and just feeling so inspired by what he was able to accomplish through franchising. I saw the impact that he had made on the lives of the franchise owners, but also just with the brand able to take that nationwide. And um, I remember the next morning, I, you know, I used to meet with Aaron um, every, every week for 90 minutes. And, then, and the next morning was our meeting. Like, hey, Aaron, I know, I know we're planning to go into the other, other states. What do you think about franchising? You know, I know that we've got a couple other franchises that, are, that have started um, and they're gaining some traction. What do you think about that? He's like, well, that's interesting. Let's, let's think about it for a week. And we made a list of some of the questions that we would, you know, ask ourselves or ask other people and evaluate. And the next week we come back with some of our due diligence on the, on the concept. Come back a week later, and uh, I'm like, okay, Aaron, here's some of my thoughts. And he says, well, I've already got the website. I've already got the attorney lined up. I've already, we've already started the first draft of the FDD. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, we're, so we're not talking about this. We're doing it, right? <laughs> and, then, it. and that, that was Aaron, right? That was, was Aaron, absolutely. He was, he was such an entrepreneur, right? And, and uh, the cart oftentimes was well ahead of the horse. And he and I made a really great combo because um, you know, I was able to pull back on the reins a little bit, just make sure that 
you know, we were going about it in a really, you know, well thought out way, but he was able to really drive and make sure things was, were moving forward. And uh, we started a franchise. We sold our first franchise at the very end of 2014 and uh, had our first initial training with four offices January 2015. So that's a long story, maybe more than you wanted, but there you go. That's that's how I got into residential property management and, and franchising. And so how many years now have you been in, in it? So since 2007 is really when we got our start in property management. So that's yeah. enough time to see quite a bit. Frankly, that's more time than I've been in the industry. Yeah. So you've been through that full market cycle, which is interesting to me. I want to hear about that because I think we're coming up on it again. What sticks yep. out to you as some of the most notable shifts and trends outside of just key renter, but globally that you've seen in residential property management? Yeah. I mean, you go back to when we got started and the market was shifting a lot, right? We were starting to see you know, a lot of people that couldn't rent or they couldn't sell their homes. And now we're starting to see that again, right? And we're starting to see more of those accidental landlords that we call them coming back in. You know, we had the great sell-off for the last five years, really. That great sell-off is really coming to an end, you know? And we've got a lot of folks that have wanted to buy. Um, but you look at the numbers, Q, Q1 2022, 24% or 21% of all of the residential homes in the country were bought by investors. Mm. And it was even stronger in Q2. And so those homes are getting eaten up by investors and the folks that wanted to buy, they can't buy anymore because of interest rates going up. The homes were allowed to get so you know, high in price, not necessarily value, but in price. And they can't afford it because of those interest rates. And so they're staying in the rental pool. Investors are coming up if they have the cash to buy up these properties. And so we've got we've got a, a surplus of tenants in a lot of ways, but also we've got an increase in inventory in the rental pool because these homes that would have been sold off may be going to investors and staying in that rental pool, but for the most part, they're being they're able to rent out their homes now. But another trend that we're seeing is because of the increase in prices in rents in a lot of the metro areas, a lot of renters are moving out. You know, that's probably something a lot of us are seeing that uh, people are moving into more uh, rural or even suburban areas to escape the high rent prices. You know, Austin's a great example. You know, as we're looking at Austin in our office there, they're experiencing, um, they had 30% rent increases the last couple of years. One of the highest rent increase uh, markets in the country a lot of folks are moving out. They're mm -hmm. tired of paying those high rent prices. And because of the great resignation that we're seeing within the job market, they're moving to areas where they can telecommute, they can work from home. And they're moving to areas like Temple, Texas, just north, and some different areas around there where they can still have a good life, but not pay such high rent. But we're also seeing people coming in, not quite at the same rate, because Austin's such a great place to live. Right. People still want to be there. So it's not like doom and gloom in some of these metro areas. But I think we're going to start seeing more and more um, opportunities for property managers to capture more market share, especially in that accidental rental pool. Um, and then with more and more investors trying to hedge inflation, um, Shadow Stats is reporting 17% inflation. 
And it's, it's wild to see how that money is flowing into residential real estate. There's a lot going on in the industry right now. If we think about trend, other types of trends on the operations side of how property management is done, about yeah. how people think about what the business is, maybe in the, in the vendor space, back in um, that far back when you were originally starting, the business itself of how it was just operated, I'm sure had to feel different than now. Mechanically, as an operator, what's changed about the day-to-day functioning of a PM biz? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in the early days, you know, we we never worked out of spreadsheets, you know, for our accounting. We we always knew that we had to have a better system. And I was I was always very interested in technology. And so, you know, I remember we started, you know, back then there weren't as many players in the software space. So I, I think we started with Tenant Pro, which is an old system. Well, you, it was you're like taking us back now. Yeah. And and then um you know, propertyware became available, and and I I love just the the cloud component of that. And back then, it was Cena and Ursula, and just a few people with the the propertyware crew. And is a great solution, a great uh, uh, option for us as we are growing and really working on creating an edge in technology with our clients who are not used to having a portal. They weren't used to having that. You know, back in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. There are only several players in the Salt Lake market. Today, there's 10x, 15x. I don't even know how many more property management companies there are on the market. And things like tenant and owner portals and receiving and, and paying rent online, um, those are just standard features. Like You have to have those sort of things. And so today, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's a common conversation that we have all the time of just how many different pieces are in the software stack, right? And how we need to have a way of bringing those together and having one piece of software, you can log in and see everything through the the rental uh, showing system, the sales system, the accounting system, and all of that through one platform. We don't really truly have an API in, in our industry. You know, an API where you can log in and not have to log into all the other systems. Yeah, they can talk now, probably better than they ever have in the past, but being able to actually have that full capability of one system, it's just not out there. And I think that the the software provider that can bring that will will do tremendously well in our industry. You know, um, there's a lot more I could go into there, but I'll, I'll pause there for you. Certainly the ecosystem is evolving and as the ecosystem opens up, it benefits everybody. I'm a hundred percent crystal clear that more openness, more accessibility, greater possibility for data portability benefits all players, vendors, PMs, et cetera. It is manifest destiny as it were for the industry. And there's been a huge amount of time lag, but it's happening now. We'll continue to push on it. Certainly we have a vested interest in seeing that happen for the industry as a whole. Outside of the tech, in terms of the people side of the business, Nate, talk to me about how you've grown as a leader managing people. (laughs) That's a great question, man. Um, you know, I, I've grown in a lot of different ways, and I think there's been several experiences and things that have happened in my life that have allowed me to have really great growth opportunities. Um, you know, early on leading a team, 
you know, it was, it was all about control. I feel like, you know, and trying to figure out, I built this, I built this company, I built the processes. Now what I need are people that will run it. Right. And I think over the years, my, my approach has changed as I've read many books on management and leadership. I've had many experiences that have allowed me to understand that um, it's, it's so much more about creating, <coughs> creating buy-in, <coughs> excuse me, creating um, synergy within a team and being able to empower people to, to recognize the challenges and solve the challenges for me. You know, I don't need to be the problem solver anymore. And I think that um, as I've grown and understood the power of people and that we recruit great people and we focus as a leader, I focus my time on the people and the culture, the other things will take care of themselves. If I'm asking the right questions, if I'm going five layers deeper, asking why and why and really getting people to think, the process issues, the, the strategy um, component, a lot of those things will, will work through the team. It allows me as a leader to step back and really focus on the future rather than getting caught up in the weeds, which I feel like is our greatest constraint as leaders and managers is getting caught up in things, getting trapped in the day-to-day -day and getting trapped in the details. Um, there's a great book called um, a CEO or a great CEOs are lazy. And one of the final chapters, he talks about the 80% rule. And I just love this concept. And in fact, I've, I've allowed this to transcend through different areas of our business where, you know, it, it's 70%. If someone can do your, your job to a 70% level, then delegate that job, right? Delegate that task. And then you train them up to 80%. Coach them, train, up, train them up to 80%. And then be satisfied with that rather than getting stuck in that, that top 20% that I think drives a lot of us nuts <laughs> as managers and as leaders. We get caught up so much in that 20% that oftentimes we're just going to weed people out of our own company because we're pushing for 100%. We're pushing for 90%. We're really what we should be getting is 80% and then just praising the heck out of the people for mm -hmm. getting there mm -hmm. and just allowing them to feel very good about it. And you know what happens? Oftentimes, they will rise above that 80% level on their own and we don't have to push them to do that. And the more we can really get out of their way and allow them to just take it from, from that standpoint of being good enough, so to speak, and, and doing a well-done job, and we praise them for it, we inspire them to be better, better people, better workers, better husbands and wives, you know, spouses, whatever it is in their lives, that's where we need to focus our time, is helping them be better. It's like Jim Rohn said, um, if you want to achieve more, you have to first become more. And so as we help our people, and when I say our people, I mean, for me, it starts with my family and myself, right? And when we help our children, we help our team, our leadership team, we help our franchise partners, and they help their teams to become better people every day. 
that's where the real magic happens because then they will be inspired and they'll have the tools that they need to really get to a higher level of efficiency, productivity, achievement, whatever it is. I love that you referenced Jim Rohn. Huge Jim Rome fan. When I think about all of the wisdom literature in business, he's really at the top of the pack for me. And I love that he never gets into the minutia. He doesn't get in the tactics. There's no industry specifics that are ever addressed. Yeah. And yet you can yeah. feel how obviously relevant it is to all industries across all time frames of all time. When you think about the flip side of encouragement and motivation, when you think about having hard conversations, where performance expectations were maybe not clarified and now they're not being met. There's frustration, tension. Talk me through your approach to having hard but necessary conversations. Yeah, first of all, they don't they don't happen often enough. You know, in just in general. I, I think that oftentimes as leaders we we wait until it becomes a bigger issue rather than using the one minute manager philosophy, which I love that philosophy too, of just, you know, it doesn't have to be a big deal. We can, we can inspire someone, we can praise someone at the same time to say, Hey, you know what? Next time, let's try this a little bit different. How did this happen for you? How did this work for you? But sometimes when there are some real frustrations, real challenges with people, for me, it's a matter of getting it out in the open, having a sit down conversation, giving them a heads up that, Hey, tomorrow I'd love to take you to lunch I'd like to talk to you about a couple of challenges I'm seeing. I want to get your thoughts and your feedback on this and see where we go from here and giving in and then giving them that heads up that, Hey, we're going to talk about some, maybe some difficult things. And I'd love for you to have some things. If you have some concerns or issues with, with myself or with just our relationship, I want to make sure that we have a great next step forward and then sitting down. And I used the, the approach of, I feel this or the team feels this when this happens. And um, how do you feel about this? You know, what are your thoughts? How does this land on you? And really just getting those sort of um, having that confrontation, I think is critical. And as leaders, we have to train our people to engage in conflict more, really engage in conflict, really embrace the fact that we can, um, have those difficult conversations. I have to have those with franchise partners too, franchisees. Mm -hmm. and, and those are some fun conversations sometimes mm -hmm. because you understand and you get to know what their real concerns are as well. And the root of the issues that, you know, whether it's performance or whether it's engagement, mm -hmm. you start to go a little bit mm -hmm. deeper with people and you find out things that are happening in their lives. And you see how maybe, I see maybe, some areas where I've failed, you know, with, with recognizing things with team members or with franchisees and um, being able to get to the root of those things is a lot of fun for me. I think that um, going back to your, your question of how, how I have grown as a leader, um, you know, I've had some difficult things happen the last few years, you know, with Aaron passing away from cancer mm -hmm. Going through that experience, which was a very new experience for me. I'd never lost someone that close to me. Mm. Um, and still at that time, needing to step away and spend time with him. And we hired an interim CEO, which was the best thing we could have done. You know, he just brought a level of 
of professionalism and structure and steadiness to the business that was really important during this time. This is early last year. Um, and being able to step away with Aaron and his family was really important. But then coming back in after he passed um, and, and taking more of a management role, I think gr having grown through that experience, having been the one that was still communicating with franchisees, because they, they loved him dearly, you know, they, he was such a great friend to, to them all. And for me to be the one communicating updates almost daily of what was going on, especially towards the end, and seeing how impactful that was, um, helped me understand as a leader that it's really about that, um, that engagement with the people that is really important. I think as leaders sometimes... I know for me, um, I've been too quiet and sometimes I've focused on the wrong things. Mm. And um, especially in a franchise world, you know, and, and that's a big part of our culture is just being very, very honest mm. and very open and humble and allowing that humility and that ability to really um, grow, to become closer and better mm. people. That's at the core of who we are. So I'm enjoying he hearing your self-reflection here. And part of what's occurring for me as I'm hearing it is realizing and remembering how much your temperament differed from Aaron's. I have a co-founder relationship. I have multiple co-founder relationships. Some are similar. Some are very opposing. My primary yeah nine to five where I spend the bulk of my time with the title and as an operator is in lead simple. And in that relationship, there's a real yin and yang, some significant polarity. And that adds some mm. real dy dynamicism to the relationship. What I observe with Chris is that being more, being less, less charismatic, not always being the front of the organization, leadership looks different. And externally, it's common for business, for, for leaders, for media to lift up the charismatic leader, the vocal one or the alpha, really. Yeah. Having, yeah. having, being able to act in that role, I see at times where I can be praised or rewarded for a level of brashness or aggressiveness, assertiveness, dominating a situation, taking names, kicking ass, sexy. It's appealing. Being quieter, being more relational, listening more is not always appreciated as much. It's the softer touch. Efficacy can be equal. And in fact, in many cases, it's that, it's that tone that is not telling, but that is listening and that is having connection as the basis of understanding in order to facilitate change and facilitate an outcome. I, I perceive you as somebody that has a, a quieter, more introspective temperament. Have you reframed or changed how you have viewed your own giftings relative to what other people tend to project about your default temperament? You know, when when you talk about that contrast, right in in a, in a partnership, Aaron and I were very yin and yang, and you you know that you knew Aaron very well, and um, and it, and it worked for a lot of in in a lot of ways and in a lot of different areas, right? Um, 
we fought about a lot, which was good. And and when you got that friction in a partnership, mm-hmm. and you've got a respectful friction, I should say, right? Iron sharpening right? iron. Yes, it it can it can create some really good outcomes. Um, I I consider myself at this point, you know, when we talk visionary integrator kind of roles, mm-hmm. I'm sixty percent integrator and and forty percent visionary at this point, mm-hmm. and so I've had to. Where if I were to go back three years ago, I'd probably consider myself more 80% integrator mm-hmm. because that's what I was doing more and more, mm-hmm. right? I was integrating. When we started the, the the PM company in 2007 and started the franchise, I was integrating the vision into the business and really getting everything going, <clears throat> the processes, the, the documents, the handbooks, all that sort of stuff was, was on me. And Aaron was more the the visionary, the driver. Now that Aaron's gone, I remember you and I even had this t- conversation, you know, um, shortly after he passed, right? And and you asked me a question of, um, with me stepping into the CEO role, you asked me, do you really want that? Mm. And and at the time, I wasn't sure what I wanted at all in in a in in my position because we had a CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I knew I love our franchisees and, and our business, but I wasn't sure what I wanted. So it took me kind of maturing through that process to recognize that what we need more than more than anything right now is someone who will continue to integrate and implement the strategies that we've already put in place, but then being able to see and use other people as consultants to come in and allow us to recognize the other areas of our business that need improvement. Mm-hmm. And see the future even more. And so for me, um, when I think about um, myself and my ability to, to lead, um, it's, it's really about um, working with the other people in our organization, leveraging their talents, leveraging their skills. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, I am, I am much more behind the scenes naturally. Naturally, I'm not the one who's going to be going up there on on stage or seeking out a lot of opportunities in, in the, to be in the spotlight. I consider myself more than Roy Disney, which who was critical, mm-hmm. right? I, I wasn't the Walt Disney and I don't consider myself that, but the more I'm in this spot, the more I'm enjoying it. Mm. And the more I recognize the importance for me to be more present and more, um, more in the light, so to speak. And it's been a lot of fun and this has been, just such an interesting time. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of fun with this and um, just enjoy the relationships more than anything else. I love watching you embrace that role. And I've also enjoyed getting to watch the arc of Key Renner as a franchisor. Let's talk a little bit about the organization, some of the distinctives. Yeah. There are, well, you tell me, I could tell you, but you tell me because you'd know better. How many franchisors are there in residential property management? So that I know of. The number of there's, four? There's four. There's four. There's four. Okay. Yeah. So there's four of them, which is the exact number I was going to say as well. And there's a different feel, different vibe, different uh, value yeah. prop yeah. for each of them. Tell me what makes Key Runner unique? That's a, that's an awesome question. You know, fr- franchising is such an interesting business. You know, when we when we got into franchising, I I, I thought I knew what it was. But it's not until you actually have franchise partners, franchisees, that you really start to learn more and more and more about the needs of 
people who are buying franchises. I mean, a lot of the franchisees that we, we bring in, they're putting everything on the line, right? They're, they're investing their retirement. They're investing, you know, they're, they're putting themselves into a place where they really are depending on you and your system to be able to create a successful future for them. And so, um, when we're looking at um, differences, you know, there's, there's a lot of similarities, but for us, it comes down to the people mm. and it comes down to the culture. Um, you know, I love the Peter Drucker quote, the culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? And so for us, it's a different culture than I think you find out there in the franchise world, not even just in property management, but in the franchise world. And I think it comes down to one core thing, alignment. And I say alignment because, and there's two areas of alignment that I focus on, alignment in vision and alignment in values. Mm. I believe that most failed relationships, be it marriage, partnership, franchise to franchise, franchisee to franchisor relationship, those relationships fail for the most part because of misalignment in vision and values. Vision being where are we going? What, what does it look like for the future? What, what, what are the, the measurables to get us there? What, what does that look like for us? What, what, what does the organization see for me as a franchisee, right? Or see for the team member? Um, are we aligned there? And in the beginning, we didn't really quite know what we were looking for. And we didn't quite know what we wanted that to look like for a franchise partner. And so we've had to create more of that vision and make sure that we're bringing on people that have that alignment. And then the values is, is even more critical. Um, who we are as an organization, what we stand for, what is our core? How do we make decisions when it's really, really hard to make those decisions? You know, what is that compass that's guiding us in our decision-making? And so our, our core values when we think about those and when we have those posts on the wall, it's not just simply a great thing that we knew we needed to have. It truly is how we make all of our decisions in the company. And, and a lot of times, in fact, even recently, um, you know, just a quick story. We had a fee that was being charged to franchisees and we had a franchise partner. And this is the thing I love about the culture of key rent. We had a franchise partner and that's what we call them. Um, some people ask, what, what are you talking about franchise partner? Is that a, Vendor? Like, no, our franchisees are partners. They're not our customers. They're not our clients. We are partners in this relationship, which means a lot more, right? It means that we, we can go like this, right? We can, we can work have together. some friction and work together to create solutions. And so with that partnership, we had a franchisee that came to us and said, hey, you guys got to look at this fee that you're charging. It was actually for a relocation, which is really common in the franchise world that you charge a fee with our digital marketing group and our support team to change things in their Google profile, change addresses in different areas. And there's a lot of work behind the scenes to move an office location. Um, and so we were charging a fee for it. And I, you know, it just raised the question of why are we charging this fee? What are the costs going to um, actual hard costs? And it turned out 
there was a way for us to make a profit on it. I don't like that. I don't like making a profit on money grabs and fees that are charged to franchise partners. I want to make sure that our revenue is because of their growth and their success. Alignment. Alignment. We're aligning those interests, right? And we've had some misalignment. And I think that a lot of franchises, um, and I'm not, I'm not calling out anyone in our industry, just in general, a lot of franchise companies have misalignment in the way that they're charging, the way that they're feeing their franchisees, the way that they're taking revenue off the top of, of um, vendor relationships, getting discounts from vendors, but then they're keeping that money instead of giving the discount to the franchisees. And that's one of our, one of our focuses is keeping, is making it cheaper, easier for franch for franchisees to run their business than it would be for them to do it on their own. That's, that's, that's what has to lead and guide our decisions. And so we want to have alignment and I want to be able to sleep at night knowing that, you know what, everything we're doing is to benefit our franchisees. You know, our decisions are for them. How can we help them grow their sales, their profit, the manageability of their businesses, and ultimately have better brand growth because of that? And so we had a misalignment with that fee. So we cut it out. We made a big announcement that we're cutting out this fee because if someone's moving their office, this is the thing that drove me nuts. If they're moving their office, it's because they've, they've grown. They've outgrown their office. So why would we... Why don't we kick him in the pants and say, hey, here's a fee because we, you, you grew your office. It's like, no, we've, we've gained royalty revenue. We should reward them and celebrate the fact that they've grown to the point of moving their office. That's just one example. We've had to really dissect a lot of the things that we just brought in in the beginning because it was standard franchise practice to charge this, to charge that, and really create alignment. And so when you talk about what makes us different, man, it's that freaking alignment. Like that is so important to us and creating a culture where we understand truly to our core that um, we are one and we are not creating a them versus us mentality, which is so common in the franchise world, but that everything we do is to support their growth and their ability to take care of the client, the property owner, and the customer, the tenant. What is the profile of the person that gets the greatest value from joining a franchise? Can Give me the, the picture of the set of circumstances that lead somebody to come in and to really just be a perfect hand in glove fit. Yeah. So when we're, when we're recruiting franchise, franchisees, franchise partners, usually the most common thing is someone, someone they really want to get into property management They've never owned a business usually, so they're, they're, they lack some confidence in their ability to run a business. They lack confidence in their ability to run, of course, a property management business. And so they really want that support system. They want the tools. They want the processes. We, they, you know, we have what we call our key renter method, which is the way we run the business. They want that. They want all of those great things, but most of all, they want the community. They want the support system, the coaching, the mentorship, the, the groups that are there to help them not fumble the ball as much on the field, so to speak, help them get there faster, easier with less mistakes. And so the franchise fees in the beginning, um, 
some people would think, man, that's got to be a hurdle. It's like, it's not really a, a big hurdle because they see that they can recoup that very quickly by avoiding a lot of mistakes and growing their business faster than they would on their own. But then we look for really five areas is what we look for um, with a franchise candidate. We look for a, a good you know background that's a good fit for us, meaning what did they do before mm-hmm. they started engaging with us? What's their what's their career? What, what did their career path look like? Their history there. We look for financial fit. They've got to be able to fund their business, you know, for the first twelve months. Um, make sure they've got some cash flow and some reserves there. We also look for their um, their talents. We want to see a talent fit for the most part, whether it's leadership and management communication, sales. It doesn't mean that they have to be super strong in all of those areas, but we just want to understand where they're going to need the most coaching. Um, and then personality. Do we like them? <laughs> Do we, is it going to be weird for us to hang out with them? You know, um, I think that's so important even to, even as well with, hiring team members, right? Hiring employees. Oh, totally. like, like, do we, do we, do we like, it doesn't mean that like, we're going to be best buddies, but, um, do they have, do they have a pretty high emotional intelligence, right? Like they can have a conversation and it's not weird. You know, it's, it's, it's a good fit there. Uh, we look at things like disc profiling and, and other things there to understand a little bit more of the, their personality. Um, but then the most important thing is alignment. You know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about the vision, their vision for their office as it relates to our vision for that territory, um, what that looks like and values. Of course, we spend a lot of time drilling in and making sure that we have vision value alignment. How, how big do franchise uh, franchise partners in this system get? What's what's the upper end of size wise? 2,500 doors is probably pretty, our, so pretty our significant. biggest office right now. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's there's a range, though. We've got our, you know, in franchising, it's common to talk about the the top 20%, the middle 60, and the bottom 20. Sure. And um, that's one of our challenges right now is really strengthening that middle 60 to rise up and follow the leaders and then allow – you know, even more momentum to bring in the the bottom 20 into that middle 60 and, and create some more growth there. Um, it's a real challenge in franchising in general. It's not unique to key renter, but the biggest, the, the biggest hurdle that we have is just inspiring uh, belief and instilling belief in our franchisees that they can really do it. They can grow, mm-hmm. creating a scaling path for them. So they understand when to bring in their first team member, what that looks like, how they start growing and scaling their company. And, and unfortunately, uh, too many don't hire soon enough. Sure. So they create these constraints within their business. Um, and, you know, when we ask our successful offices, what would you have done different? They all say, I would have hired sooner. <laughs> because that's where they really started to gain more traction is through uh, team members. Common, common thread. I love that you've highlighted alignment there. That is such a a deeply, personally, meaningfully word for me. Alignment comes up over and over and over again. Alignment is a commitment to making sure that it exists, not trying to force it, not trying to facilitate alignment by me being here and trying to bend you to where I'm at, but just what is. And if we're not aligned, the way we can get realigned is by 
re-establishing our relationship such that if we have different motivations and goals, we're able to, to part ways and believing that that's the best for everybody is to honestly, openly pursue alignment. I appreciate you coming on today. I love hearing about your story, your journey, what the organization is up to. I've enjoyed being able to work with you and the organization over the years, and I'm excited to continue to watch to see what Key Renner is building. Man, we, we love our partnership with Lead Simple. Seriously, you guys, you guys are a big part of our growth and success. So very, very much value our relationship. Thank you, Jordan. Appreciate you, brother. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me, send me an email, jordanatleadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.